I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And welcome to Off The Beaten Track Podcast. I'm your host, I'm Stu Whiffin. It's another week, therefore it's another episode. Today's episode, I sit down with Folk Royalty. I sit down with Simon Nickel, a Fairport Convention. We obviously talk about property, we talk about the band, we talk about the formative years and all the other stuff that we like to chat about on this podcast, and we'll get to that in a sec. Firstly, just a few thank yous. So I want to thank Scroobius Pip. I always thank Scroobius Pip because, aside from being my mate, if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't be doing podcasting. I wouldn't get to have the conversations like I've just had with Simon Nicol. And, and podcasting really, really has kind of been something that's popped up in my life five years ago uh, and brings me immense joy. It's opened so many doors to to have these conversations with some people that, you know, I've been lifelong fans of. And yeah, it's it's been a real lifeline through the, 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 the few years of lockdown to be able to still engage with people and have lovely conversations, be it remotely. So, so big thanks to Scroob and everybody at the Distraction Pieces Network. Go, go and explore the network. There's, there's some wonderful podcasts over there. I've got my other podcast called Hardcore Listing over there, um, which has got 400 or so episodes uh, available there. Um, you've got some wonderful uh, pod chats there. The Mama Mama podcast with Amy Borman's a beautiful podcast. Films to be buried with, with uh, superstar now, uh, Brett Goldstein. Um, that's a wonderful uh, podcast. There's so many. Go go check them out. Obviously, the Distraction Pieces podcast uh, is on there. And, oh, Pip's on a roll. You know, only recently just looking at Stephen Fry, Joe Wiley, K Tempest, like absolute amazing roster of guests. And so, yeah. So big love to the network and, and Pip. Um, secondly, I want to thank um, 76, who produces these podcasts and, and, and tidies them up. And uh, and sometimes with the remote recordings, uh, sometimes there can occasionally be a little bit of drag on Wi-Fi and things like that. And he does his best to ensure that you get the nice, warm sounding podcast that's going to be comforting for your ears. Um, and obviously, um, lastly and most importantly, uh, a big thank you to yous because you lot make this podcast, you know, even more of a joy to do because... I've had so many lovely interactions with so many of you that have, have, have reached out and said thanks or, or given us a like, a love, a share, a retweet on the socials. So, so yeah, massive love to all of you for supporting this podcast. You know, we're fast approaching 400 episodes now. And, oh, you know, only yesterday I was just having a, 
a little think of like you know who I've had on and completely forgot that I'd had Chuck D from Public Enemy on and and when I had Chuck on that was for me felt like the a real turning point in the podcast and and, and from that moment it, it it seemed to be that artists had seen that I'd spoke to Chuck and more all of a sudden everybody was saying yes to come on this podcast so I'd definitely say that that episode's worth a listen um but there's so many, you know, some of my uh, episodes that, that I still really, really, you know, tell people to go and check out. And, and there's loads. I mean, go, go and pick the band, the artist, the comedian, the actor that you like. And, you know, they've all been really lovely, warm conversations. But uh, if you've not listened to the Maxine Peak episode yet, that was somebody that I was so... I've made a little note to myself when I set the podcast up that I really wanted to speak to Maxine Peak uh, and Johnny Marr. Uh, anyone knows Johnny Marr? Get on him. I've had Niall Marr on. I want your dad. Uh, I want Johnny Marr on. He's, he's my, my bucket list. I think I'm done once I spoke to Johnny. But Maxine was the other guest on that list. And, oh, my God, I was so nervous. But the conversation was, was lovely. And what a, a beautiful, warm soul she is. Um, so, yeah, anyway, that's enough waffling. Just a big thank you. That's essentially where I'm going with this. And, uh, yeah, and if... Um, you haven't subscribed and checked out the back catalogue then do so and if that's not enough i do have a patreon and it costs you uh, about 75p a month and then you get access to hundreds of shows you can watch all the episodes i put all the videos up on there so if you'd like to watch your podcasts you can do that over there i put up radio shows um, i upload lots of different playlists and stuff so there's stacks of stuff that you can get lost in uh, on the patreon and that that dollar a month all goes in the pot to to help keep the podcast rolling okay anyway that's me done please enjoy off the beat and track podcast with fairport conventions simon nickel right i've got to take a quick break in this podcast because i've got some super exciting news off the beat and track podcast is proud to go into partnership with the cacao bar from hotel chocolat that's right the cacao bar is not a chocolate bar. It's all the best bits of a chocolate bar put into a really exciting new alcoholic range. That's right. Gin, vodka, and a beautiful range of cream liqueurs. So one of the big bonuses of this partnership is obviously I'm super thrilled to have Hotel Chocolat working with us, but they sent me a great big box of this stuff. And I'm telling you, it's amazing. Go and check it out www.hotelchocolat.com or over on the socials at Hotel Chocolat. But yeah, in the coming months, there's going to be opportunities for you to get involved with competitions with us, to win bottles of stuff. There's loads of exciting things coming soon and I can't be more happy to say that this podcast is in partnership with the Cacao Bar from Hotel Chocolat. All right, let's get back to the podcast. It's Off The Beat and Track Podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. It me, Stu Whiffin. Okay, we are recording. Uh, joining me today, Simon Nickel. good morning. Hey, good morning, Stu. How are you? I'm all right. I'm all right. Um, I've, had a, I've had a quick tour before we press record. I've seen your, uh, your glorious um, shed, or, or, or uh, it's a posh-looking shed, and I could hear the birds yeah. singing in the background, and then... You, you, you spun the, 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 the laptop round, so I, I had a quick nose. It looks very glorious. Where, whereabouts is that today as well? Uh, we're halfway between Canterbury and Dover. Oh, lovely. Down in East Kent. 
Lovely. Yeah, Lovely. It's, it's all right if you like truck, uh, truck spotting. <laughs> It's not one of my favourite pastimes, I won't lie. <laughs> right, Simon, how we do this, um, we start the playlist and uh, and I'm going to ask you, um, as I always do uh, with my guest, to kick things off. I'd like you to tell me the song that you think has the greatest ever intro. Yeah, well, when, when, I, when I had notice of this question, I was immediately put in a dichotomy i could not decide between two but eventually i had to plump for one um i'll tell you the one I, that nearly made it mm. and then i'll tell you the proper one um at the top of like a rolling stone by bob dylan on the bringing it all back home album uh that song starts with a cracking downbeat on the snare drum just out of the blue and was i think was in who was uh, one of the Nashville scene guys, uh, put it beautifully. He said, that sound of that snare drum, when you hadn't heard the song before and you had no idea what was coming, was like a door being smashed open into a whole world of music which hadn't existed till that very moment. And it's short, punchy, it couldn't be any more direct and it's not what people think of as an intro, but to me, it really does make your hairs on the back of your neck stand up. However, I think it was trumped by the opening chord of A Hard Day's Night. Again, couldn't be more concise, couldn't be more identifiable. Uh, and although it didn't usher in a whole new world, it summed up what the Beatles had done up to that point and said, hey, we're not just what we've done up to now. There's a whole world in front of us. And the great thing about that chord is it sounds like it's, you know, a lot of people used to say, oh, that's just easy. You just, like, turn an electric guitar up and smash the strings without touching the, you know, without using your left hand at all. But, of course, it isn't that. It's a quite a carefully uh, constructed thing, and you can't play it on one guitar. Oh, really? Uh, no, you need, you need two guitars and a bass guitar. But the songs, the, the, the notes that come out of those three instruments, when they're constructed properly, make that unique full chord. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so interesting, it's, isn't it? How, like, uh, like a Rolling Stone and Hard Day's Night, it's just one sound and that one split second sound, you already know what's coming because you yeah. know that, and, and you look at these long well-crafted intros such as you know aforementioned ones on this podcast things like bohemian rhapsody that have got these long yeah. you know masterful well put together you don't have to do that if you can no, nail you it that quickly and yeah, that cleverly yeah, that's an art form in itself right it is i mean the introduction is setting the scene i mean when you say introduction uh my first thought in the wider world of music is what happens at the top of an opera or a, a musical comedy, you know, something. It, it's, it's, or a, a, one of the great um, Rodgers and Hammerstein's film musicals, you know, over the titles, you'll get an introduction, which is a snapshot of things to come, little trailer pieces, all carefully, beautifully blended together, giving you some of the highlights of the songs and tunes to come. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's all about setting the scene, get, wetting people's appetite, 
and getting them ready for the whole main meal. An amused bouche of music before a fabulous banquet. Absolutely. But as you say, it can be encapsulated, and there's absolutely no doubt about what's coming next. Yeah. And the first time you hear it, it it just like puts you to attention and makes you makes you stand up and pay pay notice. Yeah, I think the the, the Beatles also it's quite similar with Help as well, wasn't it? It's just that that first yelp of the word help and you're in yeah uh, yes you are yeah um, yeah i mean yeah. T- talk a little bit simon about um you, you, obviously you've spent many years songwriting and i just want to know oh, no, no I, I must pull you up there sir uh i've never been a songwriter okay. i've written i've written two and a half songs in the last 55 years so i wouldn't <laughs> say <laughs> i want to say... discuss the half <laughs> what's the half well, I, <laughs> Okay, the half, that's a song called What Tyler, mm. which is um, uh, a historical interpretation of the proceedings around the uh, Peasants' Revolt of 1381. Mm. Uh, obviously, not a subject many bands would want to tackle. <laughs> but uh, I think it was in the early 90s, um, and it's on an album from Fairport in that period. Now, Ralph Attell is a very good friend and uh, a massively experienced songwriter and a genius at turning thoughts and, and ideas into singable lyrics. Um, and for some reason or other, I mean, he'd written a few songs specifically for Fairport in the previous 10 years. And he's very, you know, close to the band. He's probably one of the people who's closest to the band without actually ever being considered to be, you know, a member, yeah. you know, a, a touring member of the group. But uh, a lot of our songs that have lasted the best have been a, started life in his brain. Anyway, he wanted to. He was. He was. He he'd looked into the story of what Tyler, and how he came to be, in those days, um, how he came to be a national figure representing an, uh, um, a real peasants' revolt against the powers that be, so long ago, and. Um, He'd found some things out about the story which were appealing and cinematic to him. He, he wanted to tell the story in a bit more detail about how his relationship facing up to the young Richard II, who was obviously the, the monarch of all he surveyed back then, but was still only about 14 or 15 at the time. Uh, and they had a face-off meeting in London, and one thing led to another, and eventually uh, it turned into a scuffle, and what Tyler was killed on the spot by the then Lord Mayor of London. So this all sounded like a great idea for a story. But but Ralph had got so far with sketching out the lyric form, because to tell a story like that, you've got to, you've got to do it in ballad form. Uh, it's got to have a continuous rolling narrative that keeps the, the, the images flashing through your mind and sure. makes it tellable. Uh, and he got so far and no further, and he said, come on, Simon, you, you've got a way with words. We can do this. Come on, come around my place and we'll... We'll thrash it out. So we sat down in his garden on a, it was a pleasant spring morning, I think it was, and we uh, he got all these books out and he showed me what the salient points of the narrative were as he saw it. And uh, anyway, that's that's what happened. We eventually knocked it into shape, made it singable, and not too long. Yeah. And uh, so that's my half song credit. I would never <laughs> have. <laughs> Never been inspired to write songs, uh, and I'm still not now because I think it's it's like any form of creative art. You've got to get the cliches out of your system first. Yeah. You know whether it's like learning to do watercolors, or 
or write a song or write a novel, you've got to start off with the short stories um, and burn your way through all these shortcuts and cliches and oft-repeated things. Yeah. Uh, tear up your first thousand songs and then you'll write one. Yeah. I just don't have that kind of application. Yeah. Anyway, back to your question. <sighs> okay. I'm going to ask you for track two to tell me the first song that you remember hearing that had an emotional impact on you, please. Uh, well, we're going to go back to Bob Dylan here. Um, yeah. Uh, long before I thought of music as anything other than a spectator sport. I mean, I, I loved listening to music when I was, a, you know, in my primary school years and all sorts of music, you know, but I didn't, uh, didn't bring much of it into the house myself. You know, there's my parents' choice in music, my big sister's choice in music. Uh, what, so sort of stuff, sort of, what sort of stuff was that, Simon? What sort of music were you being exposed well, to at home? Um, well, from mum and dad, that would have been sort of classics, light classics and uh, big band jazz, wartime music, mm-hmm. um, stuff that they grew up with. But quite quite a broad uh, quite a broad range. I mean, I went to one or two classical concerts at Kenwood House in North London because uh, we lived down the hill in Muswell Hill from Hampstead, and that was a that was a place they liked to go on a summer's yeah. evening. There were you know concerts in the in the park there at Kenwood, uh, and uh, my dad liked Duke Ellington. Uh, when I was eight, he took me to see. Ellington at the story of Finsbury Park wow. with his big band. And that was that was uh, the first time I went to a concert of that nature yeah. and got the feeling of what it was like to be in a house in the dark with, you know, 1,500 music fans listening to this, well, what seemed like to be, well, it was very powerful music. I mean, it was a whole Duke Ellington orchestra. And uh, obviously most... Most of most of the content went clear over my head, yeah. as you'd expect. But the the vibe that I got from being in that performance space and the energy and the power of it all that uh, obviously stayed with me. Yeah, but I mean, when I when I when I started to respond to music lyrically, I think Bob Dylan had a, a great deal to do with that. He wasn't the only singer songwriter, but he was the the man carrying the flag for it. Yeah. You know. And uh, during the Cuban Missile Crisis of 62, 63, um, he came out with Masters of War. And we'd all got it into our heads as, you know, young adolescent boys and girls that we were very likely to die, not just individually, but we were all going to be wiped out by nuclear war. It was a very real thing and and it you called into question all sorts of things about your future and your life and what was it why am i going to school you know i don't enjoy getting out of bed and getting in my uniform and going to school on the bus what's the point you know we're all going to be like charcoal just as soon as one of these madmen presses a button uh and masters of war is a you know it's it's all sorts of things in retrospect you know the way he he's taken um a traditional form and a lyric and a tune uh, and reinterpreted and rewritten a lyric based on the, the whole idea of 
the inevitability of death, but bringing it into focus as a, as a human artifact. Yeah. Uh, so I was, I was very moved by that. So that's why I came up with that answer for your question. If you had to pinpoint the emotion, Simon, what would it have been? Uh, many, many. It's a cocktail of emotions, isn't it? It's the, it's the why me? Why, why was I born in this era? Yeah. You know, <laughs> why are we all going to die when I'm just got the world at, at my feet? Yeah. You know, when I'm in in five years' time, I'll be through with school. You know, I'll be starting a life. It'll be a clean palette. Why is this being taken away? And the folly, you know, the continuing folly of man's inhumanity to man. And it's yeah. it's just the ghastly tribalness that we've somehow ever still got at the very roots of our beings when we speak of societies. Yeah. You know, why do we have this need to cleave to one particular football club yeah. and feel superior and and to dismiss uh, other people because they have a different language or they keep their Sabbath on a different day. Yeah. It's just tribal. It's the, the, the biggest evil. Yeah. And, and obviously we're, we're, we're currently living in a world where that's as prevalent as, as ever. And uh... well, in, in, in our society at the moment, you know, xenophobia is having a wonderful time. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the expense of expense of, Simple humanity and recognizing that, you know, we're always going to have more in common than we've got to separate us. Yeah, 100%. Um... One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra. And I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. I'm at an age where I, I was just too young to to, to capture punk uh, and, yeah. and and the furore that that caused, and 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 I just want to ask you, like, just to, you know, to discuss Dylan a little bit more, like, the, just the impact that that Bob Dylan, you know, had on you at that point. Uh, well, he, the great thing about Dylan. Uh, is his capacity to reinvent himself, yeah. which uh, he retains to this day. You know, when he comes out with a new record, you've got no idea how it's going to connect back to the previous one or what references it will make to earlier points in his life. But yeah. the the succession of records that came out in the first half dozen were, were 
were extraordinary. The, the, the way he, he kept changing, if there was a direction, he kept changing it. Um, and the fact that he didn't sound like anybody else, you know, you know, it was like his timing was rubbish. His, his tuning was like the last thing on his mind. Yeah. Uh, and he sang in a way which was so personal. It was so identifiable and, and, and it rubbed people up so much the wrong way. If they didn't like it, they really didn't like it. Yeah. But he didn't care. He didn't care if his, inter- his, his, his unconventional approach to singing rendered uh, the depth and beauty of his lyrics. It, it rendered that unavailable to a lot of his listeners. Yeah. A lot of people who came upon him just couldn't get past his voice. Yeah. So they, they, they dismissed him out of hand. But he didn't care about that. He was following his own star. So at a time when everything was formalised and everything was controlled by a cartel of huge companies, which um, if you weren't in with them, then you, you were just like, you weren't even in the game. Yeah. You know, there was, there was no game. It was just like the top five or six companies. And they were, you know, monolithic. Yeah. So, yeah, he represented a lot of stuff, which was about independence and uh, the strength of determination and a conviction in your own art and your own belief in yourself. Yeah. That's what he spoke of to me. And, of course, that's always going to be a popular thing to, to preach to adolescents, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I, I happen to be of an age where I, I, I kind of caught a young Billy Bragg happening, and, and, yeah. and that was very similar. You have a, People just could not take his voice. Yeah. Or, yeah. <laughs> you know, you saw the beauty <laughs> in it, and that was, that was what I saw. And, uh, okay. Well, we, we, we're talking formative years here. So for track three... Uh, Simon, I'm going to ask you, please, to tell me the song that reminds you of your time at school. Um, well, we've talked a lot about that already, haven't we? But it wasn't all like walking around under a nuclear cloud. I mean, there was the usual sort of adolescent growing up stuff. Um, and, you know, went to youth club. Uh, that's where I met Ashley Hutchings, uh, for instance, who became and is still is one of my colleagues because uh, Ashley ran um, all the bands in our part of North London. He was a bass player and leader, and he'd have a band for every sort of occasion or musical style. And uh, his band used to play at uh, our youth club in Muswell Hill and um, on a Friday night. And uh, so that's when I saw music up close and personal being done. And I had a 12-string guitar and he didn't know anybody else who'd got a twelve-string guitar, and even though I couldn't play it, I had it. So that was a start. Yeah. So I went into his little black book, and one thing led to another. But uh, yeah, it was the music had a was beginning to have a, a a functional form for me as well as something you listen to. But listening to music in those days, it was you know the early early to mid sixties was um, it was a background thing of growing up and. Uh, you know, some lovely, short, feel-good, happy songs, uh, romantic stuff. And I don't know, when um, I thought of one to pick out and say this is a sort of typical piece that brings back those summers, um, I would say Mary Wells, My Guy, has got all the benefits of, you know, it's proto-Motown. Mm. Uh, it's got 
really solid playing on it. Lovely little catchy tune. And her vocal performance is it's perfect. Let's yeah. rate it. Yeah, oh, 100%. I think, you know, that, that, that mid-60s period of, of Motown was just, you know, it, it was, I guess, the ultimate hit factory. It was just churning out perfect pop music and so sweet, yet some of the lyrics were so so sad, yet the, the, the melodies were so up. It, was just, it just gave this perfect combination of, of music. And it was, yeah, I, I think that period of Motown, personally, I, I think is exceptional. Yeah, and you could pick so many others. It's just, mm. uh, you know, I selected that one, but on another day I might have checked with something else. Yeah. <laughs> How was school as an experience? Did you enjoy it? Uh, I was, I was well, speaking personally, I was, I was quite good at school um, in the sense of academically, but that was because I, was, I started really young. My, you know, I was the youngest of four, and my parents obviously found me a bit of an encumbrance being four, five years younger than my next sibling. Yeah. So I think they wanted the, their lives back a bit earlier than as soon as possible. So I was dispatched <laughs> to full-time school when I was about three and a half. So by the time I got to secondary school, I was like a year ahead of everybody else because they kept me hanging about, you know, when I went up to secondary school, I had to sort of do an extra year in Perda. Uh, so that kind of broke my flow. And uh, I think, um, I think I might've had a different career if I, if I'd remained engaged in education, uh, I could have done quite well. But then my dad died when I was 13. So uh, that was a massively disruptive thing, obviously. Um, and I definitely went off the boil then. So I didn't actually finish my education. But I enjoyed uh, I enjoyed my time at school. Yeah. Um, went to very small schools. They were both primary and secondary school were both very small. Were, my secondary school only had a, a roster of about 140 kids. You know, which is quite small nowadays, and it was an all boys all boys outfit as well. So I I was kind of I I left in my GCE GCE year uh, without really without finishing my O levels. I I didn't even bother going to most of the exams. So I left with just the two English levels. Did you have any idea what you wanted to do then? Just get out of school, really. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I didn't hate it, but I just. I was ready to stop being a schoolboy. That yeah. was all. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to ask you to tell me the first song that you remember buying from a record shop for track four, please, Simon. Well, that's easy because it's a simple fact. It was, uh, uh, it was on a 78. I'm that old. It was actually a 78 <laughs> shellac disc. And it was a, an instrumental, a piano instrumental piece called uh, The Poor People of Paris. Um, I'd have been about seven or eight when I'd, you know, through pester power. But I had, to, I had to actually produce the money for it, I think. Um, you know, probably three and a tanner back then. Uh, and it was by Winifred Atwell. It was, I only found out recently that it wasn't an original piece of hers. Uh, but by accident, I was uh, a, an old chart from about that period in the, the late 50s turned up and it was a billboard chart and the poor people of Paris was on that list yeah. by somebody else, presumably the writer. But Winifred Atwell obviously is not a name on the public's list, you know, these days. But she was a, an exotic Caribbean lady who played sort of pub piano. 
uh, and it was very ear catchy. And um, her thing was like she had a jangle box piano, you know, with drawing pins in the in the hammers. Yeah. So it had this funky noise, um, which appealed to my uh, single figure years. Wonderful. And in, in and in the years that sort of followed, like how important did did records and record shopping become for you? Not. Uh, I didn't have a, an extensive collection. No, I, I I listened to a lot of music, but I didn't spend a lot of money on it. I didn't amass a load of records, which I still have. No. Mm. Um, but record shops were were great places to go and and hang. Yeah. Uh, 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 particularly up um, West End. You know, we'd, we'd go and, and we'd go to Dobell's Music Shop and Collets and what was that one in um, the uh, there was one in New Oxford Street underneath um, Centre Point. Tower Records? Uh, no, no, this is long before then. I'm, I'm talking um, mid-60s. Right. Okay. You know, me and my mates, would go, we'd go up west on uh, Saturdays yeah. and, and spend a long time looking in. Uh, but but, but uh, by this point, I'd already uh, begun to be aware of the connection between music and politics. Not that I've pursued that much in my life since, but at the time uh, there was a definite crossover between the whole CND thing, um, the uh, the dangerous areas around left-wing politics and communism in particular, which was closely watched by MI5 and yeah. uh, the, the, the intellectual um, left-wing, um, which was very much you know the, the literary world uh, and the musical world met in the middle ground of protest music and there were shops like dobells and collets which were uh, they were obviously places where people of that mindset could gather yeah. and meet you know god knows what nefarious activities went on and how many people were moles in there working for mi5 yeah. but uh, it was there was a there was a countercultural element to it. Yeah, did you feel yeah, exciting? Um, not now, but anybody who's not uh, anti-establishment and and extremely and extremely left wing in their teenage years has obviously got a gene missing. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Now I know that um, when I sent this question over, I asked you to uh, to tell me the song that soundtrack your years clubbing. Uh, you, you, you sent me over a message saying uh, you, you've not been yet. Um, yeah. That that question can lend itself. So I'm going to put you on the spot here, Simon, um, to just the sort of formative years of, of, of pubs and gigs, like a, a song that if you hear now will take you back to them sort of times as, as a young man. Well, yeah. I was, clubbing sort of to me suggests that... Um, a fairly lose yourself in the moment kind of physical involvement of dance and and overpowering sensations of live repetitive that poundingness yeah. you know where you, where you just like get your body massaged by exhaustion physical energy and it, that's not me yeah but I used to go uh, Fridays Friday nights I would usually go to the manor house. Which is a big public house, was a big public house, just the other side of Finsbury Park, which had a big upstairs room, Victorian Roadhouse, typical, you know, London pub. 
and they had a great music room up there and they put on all the great bands so you know uh it'd be invidious to single anybody out but you'd, you know you'd see zoot money you'd see georgie fame see john may or uh you'd see the who uh and any of those bands gino washington oh. uh you know fantastic live music you know sweaty people absolutely rammed in yeah. deafening sound but you know there wasn't any dancing going on it was just like a load of adolescent fellas sort of getting off on the music yeah so um uh, being pounded by it in that physical way so i suppose you could go to that period if you wanted something akin to clubbing but, yeah absolutely yeah. i i was blessed to see uh gino played my venue um probably oh god 20 years ago now um uh, and 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 he was phenomenal then. Um, yeah. How was that in 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 the sixties seeing Gino? Oh, it's I mean it's great, but I mean he didn't stand head and shoulders above anybody else. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's like Brian Auger, you know. Get um, saw an early Cream gig there. You know, it's yeah. unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, and it and it was like all oh, seven and a tanner, and he'd get like he'd nurse a pint of Guinness all night. And, um, <laughs> Most of it would end up knocked down your trousers, and yeah, it was wonderful. All very formative stuff. Well, for track six, I'm going to take you home, Simon, and ask you to tell me a favourite song from an artist from your home county, please. Um, yeah, okay, this is literally off the top of my head. Um, I've only lived in in Kent now for seven years. And one of the people I've met since I've been down here is Will Varley who's a young singer-songwriter, say young. I mean, he, you know, he's younger than me, yeah. but then most people are. <laughs> and he deserves to be better known. Okay. And uh, he has a song called uh, The Man Who Fell to Earth, and it's not to be confused with any by David Bowie. Sure. But uh, it's uh, – he uh, Will represents to me the very best of the, the – um, Troubadour tradition, if you can call Bob Dylan a troubadour. But uh, uh, a man who creates his own music and is able to perform it in a perfect Bob Dylan-sized package. Will Varley does the same with Will Varley's stuff. There we go. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. 
Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you as well, because... Um, I know that you're talking about Kent and, 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 and the time that you've lived there. Uh, I, you did also send over something which I, I want to sort of ask you about, and that was you did also mention Waterloo Sunset by Ray Davis. Yeah. yeah. So have you, can you tell me a bit more sort of around uh, that if, as an option yeah. as well? If we go back to uh, my home county, as you were, of uh, where I literally you know, cut my teeth and grew up, uh, you know, my home, my house, my family home was called Fairport. Yeah. And it still is. It's in Muswell Hill. And it was my dad's place of work as well as where we lived. It's a doctor's surgery and he was a GP. And amongst his GP's duties was uh, he was family doctor to the Quaifs, who had a son called Pete, who was the bass player, grew up and to be the bass player in, in the Kings. And uh, the Davis brothers, uh, lived in a little house directly opposite the Clissold Arms, which was about 400 yards from our house, our front door. And that was the pub my mum and dad used to go to. Uh, so they knew the Davises as you know, people who lived opposite the pub. So I, I grew up very much aware of the Davises, as uh, I mentioned the, the youth club earlier. Um, the Ravens, which was the name the Kinks had before they became the Kinks, were one of the bands that used to play at our uh, youth club. And I went to their last gig as the Ravens. Uh, and I went to their first gig as the Kinks when they were reinvented. Yeah. Uh, just about the time that they were signing up to Pie and they got a new manager and he got them dressed up in outfits and, you know, the hunting coats and all that styled them up. And uh, that coincided with a release of You Really Got Me and they became a number one act just like that. But we went to their very first gig as the as the Kings, and uh, that was in the church hall down in down Muswell Hill in Hornsey. And uh, so I sort of knew them at one remove. They were just uh, that little bit older than me, so I didn't know them personally. And they were a little bit rougher too, because you know they went to the yeah the rougher part of town, you know, rougher part of Muswell Hill. Uh, but uh, Waterloo Sunset, I think. Uh, it's Davis's first really poetic song, the first one that I heard, which was uh, more than just attempting to be a hit song. Yeah. It's, 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 it has so much more than its lyrics contain. It's a proper verbal poem, yeah. you know, and a love and a love song yeah. to uh, to London. 
seeing all of these bands just up the road, you know, you mentioned The Who and obviously now The Kinks and, 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 and such and, and Gino, etc. Like, often when I speak to guests that, that sort of live outside of London, you know, in, in their home county, they may have like a history of like maybe one or two artists that, that went on to, 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 you know, to have success in the music industry. Um, being surrounded by so much music and at that time where, where, where bands, as you said the, about the kinks, like literally, it, you know, quite quickly, the minute, you know, you really got me come out, they become superstars and, and, and household names. Like seeing all of that, did that as somebody that was, you know, that, that had a, had a guitar and, and was interested in music, did it, did it all seem that like, all oh, right, this is, this is possible. You, you know, you can pick up a guitar yeah. and these things, these things, you know, can happen. Yeah, well, at that particular time, and when we became, uh, when we took the name Fairfield Convention, it was in May 1967. I mean, the, the tides were really running in our direction. Yeah. Live music was a, as a absolutely vital part of society. It was it was ubiquitous. It was in every pub had a back room or a top room. Yeah. There were a million places to play. You know, and so it was a perfect outlet for young people. Yeah. Um, so I loved it. Yeah, I was it was very fortunate that the stars aligned in that way. Yeah, and uh, I think it was about two months after we changed the name to Fairport Convention, um, we got a gig at UFO, which was one of the big London happening places to be. Uh, we were supporting Pink Floyd that night, and... Um, Joe Boyd happened to be there, who was one of the organisers, part-time organisers of UFO, along with John Hopkins. And uh, he liked what he saw. He particularly liked Richard Thompson, obviously, because of his free-flowing, completely original approach to guitaring. But he liked the whole vibe of the band, and um, he spoke to us about becoming our manager and signed us uh, to a record company. So we went, you know, from really hopeful semi-pros to properly signed musicians on a wage just like that inside two months so yes as you say it, you had a guitar and everybody I knew had a guitar and played four chords yeah so uh, but we got we got to uh, you know in the right place right time sort of thing and yeah. um, so we went you know we became sort of professional and, and the sky was blue the sky was limitless and the sky was uh, where we were heading wonderful um, for the last track, Simon, I'm going to ask you um, to tell me a song that you think many people may not know that you would like them to hear. Uh, I a go-to song in this, to this kind of question is 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 nine times out of ten I'm going to come up with "Sand and Water" by Beth Nielsen Chapman. Okay. Um, Beth is a, a Nashville-based singer-songwriter. Uh, I first encountered her when my good pal Paul Samuel Smith, who was bass player in the Yardbirds and went on to be a, uh, a fantastically successful song producer and artist liaison guy, uh, records too numerous to mention and very successful at it. He called me up and said, um, got this American girl coming over. She's got a bunch of songs. Um, I'm trying to put together a studio band. Would you be interested? You know, spend a fortnight in a residential studio, 
with some people, some of whom you know, some of whom you don't, and just knock these songs into shape. Uh, the diary was fortunately free, and there I was, you know, suddenly in in this whole new world of completely different songs. Beth's um, a beautiful tunesmith and a wonderful songwriter, and she can be insanely up and joyous. There's a great song of hers called This Kiss, um, which is a massive Grammy Award-winning country hit. Uh, and she can write songs to make you punch you in the heart yeah. in a good way. Yeah. And Sand and Water uh, is one of the songs that came out of her losing her husband to cancer uh, probably 20 years ago, 25 years ago now maybe. Um, it speaks for itself. I can't, I can't big it up, yeah. but uh, let it move you. Well, we, we make it quite straightforward for people to, to, to go and access these records. We put together a little playlist to accompany the podcast and the, and the link to that will be in yeah. the show notes to, to this episode. Um, so we, we're seeing that, that, that 2022 is starting to appear to be a, a, a more, covid free place i don't know you know well covid adapted well yeah i mean it's it's still there in abundance but we seem to be kind of you know pressing on and which we're seeing lots of gigs happening again festivals happening again um and and, and people sort of seemingly enjoying each other's company in in public places again um with that in mind i'm gonna ask you uh what you're looking forward to from the rest of this year, personally, Simon, and what's going to uh, be happening professionally? Well, uh, we have already completed uh, our usual winter tour, having give, had to give that a miss last year. We did complete it in 2020. On the 23rd of February, we finished that wow. winter tour. So we did that all the way through, and then a week later, it all like the world fell in, the sky fell in. So we missed it last year. We've um, and of course we missed our spring tour. We missed the Property Festival, two years running now. Uh, so we're easing back into it. We had a a very successful run of five weeks, although it turned into six weeks because we lost two weeks in the middle to COVID. There you go. <laughs> you know, two guys in the band came down with it, and we had to take two weeks out uh, and tighten up the bubble. Uh, and we resumed and finished and put an extra week on the end of the cancelled gigs. So looking forward to getting out again in another two weeks' time for a, a spring tour where we're going to, I'm afraid, going to have to continue to keep uh, as private as we can, as, as, as isolated from our adoring fans, which is terrible, really, because the whole fun of going out and touring is not just getting on stage and making the noises and singing the songs and and having that simple pleasure that you have within yourselves to an audience uh it's actually enjoying the business of traveling around yeah uh being with friends you know being with people you see just at gigs or, or when you visit their hometowns just can't do that yeah. because there's a whole bunch of us on the road and we we've, we've all got to be well or it all stops so it's you know i'm looking forward to it but i'm kind of dreading it being interrupted again yeah. but you can only do so much to protect yourself. We are all vaccinated to the hilt, same as everybody else is. And at least now when people do uh, fall victim to it, 
it's not the end of the world. It doesn't mean a trip to hospital. It doesn't mean, you know, you're living on a knife edge. It doesn't mean necessarily that you're going to be stricken for months to come with the after effects. Uh, so it is, as you say, we're beginning to ease back towards the kind of normal interactions that we, but I, I don't think it's going to be uh, back to normal, normal, normal mm-hmm. for some time to come. But yes, I'm looking forward to that. And I'm particularly looking forward to the Cropperty Festival, which has always been for the last 40 plus years, been the, the linchpin of my year and for everybody in the Fairport's world. You know, are getting together with 20,000 or so people who've somehow or other been touched by Fairport in the last 55 years. And it's a place of not pilgrimage. That makes it sound ridiculous, but it's a place of collective community. Nice. And uh, it's it means something else, you know, to have, you know, we're a small band. We don't, you know, we've never bothered the record industry. We've never made any money for anybody. We've created a community of, of souls who have this one thing in common. And, uh, you know, if I get knocked down by a bus tomorrow, I will at least have been part of something that I couldn't have possibly imagined when I left school all those years ago. That's a lovely place to, to finish today's episode, Simon. Um, I'm good at that. <laughs> if people want to find out all about the festival um, and tours and stuff, Head to the website. Yeah, all the W's, fairportconvention.com. Wonderful. Simon, it's been an absolute pleasure talking records with you. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, and, yeah, and best of luck with the gigs and festivals this year. And good luck with the editing. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, mate. There you have it, Simon Nicol of Fairport Convention. What a human. What a lovely man. Um yeah, just hearing like that the impact that that Bob Dylan had on a young man, like yeah, and the, the fact that seeing so many incredible artists in such small venues and and yeah, and then you know just looking at the the the, the, the time and the reach and what they've developed with the Cropperty Festival is something spectacular. Um, I remember being early twenties and. You know, there being this, he used the word pilgrimage. There was a pilgrimage, a property festival. You know, so many people where I live would all go there. And, you know, it was a, it was a real once a year, we've got to go property. And, uh, and yeah, Fairport Convention still rocking, absolutely rocking. Um, lovely chat, lovely man, lovely audience, lovely day. Have a, have a bloody lovely day and I'm going to stop saying lovely and I'm going to go now thanks ever so much people everything you need to know about this podcast one stop shop off the beat and track podcast.com I'll see you next time bye bye it's off the beat and track podcast on the distraction pieces network keep me stew with it eat a monkey